With Revelation chapter 4, we move on from the letters that censor the seven churches to an awe-inspiring heavenly scene. In her little-known commentary on the book of Revelation, the renowned 19th-century poet and commentator Christina Rossetti speaks about the significance of the change in scene when, in her prayer to the Lord, she says, Lord, we have heard your reproof. Turn us and teach us by your Holy Spirit the meaning of your sacred words. May this be our prayer today also as we meditate on this remarkable heavenly scene. May the Lord teach us by his most Holy Spirit the meaning of his sacred words. Amen. Chapter 4 begins with John looking and seeing an open door in heaven. He hears a voice like a trumpet inviting him to come up here where I will show you what must take place after this. We too are invited to come up and look with John. And yet, like Isaiah, we are conscious of our utter unworthiness to view the throne room of God, where the seraphim call to one another, holy, 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 the Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of your glory. Isaiah responds to seeing the king, the Lord of lords, with woe is me. I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. As we are invited into, to go through the open door to gaze and experience the glorious scene revealed to John, we too should be conscious of our unworthiness. And yet, as the very humble Rossetti recognized, we need to enter because to gaze in whatever ignorance on what God reveals is to do his will. And so in what Joe Mangina calls a truly liminal passage that we cross, and here we cross a threshold from what can be humanly experienced and imagined to what lies beyond our ken. What John sees in the spirit inside the door is the throne. The throne is really important to John. He mentions it 47 times in the book of Revelation. In outside Revelation, it's only mentioned 15 times. The throne is not an earthly throne, but rather God's throne. John is very circumspect in what he describes. He uses images and metaphors that arouse our senses of sight and sound. And yet, as artists and musicians and commentators and really all careful readers recognize, John's picture is imprecise and leaves much to the sanctified imagination. The one seated on the throne is described in terms of the brilliance of precious and semi-precious stones. The stone John calls jasper may be the mineral we call jasper, a stone that is opaque and comes in many colors. But more likely, it describes the more clear and dazzling stone named Jasper found in Revelation 21, verse 11, where the holy city of Jerusalem is described as having a radiance like a very rare jewel, like Jasper, clear as crystal. The same glorious throne is encircled with a rainbow, that is unlike any rainbow we have ever seen. 
It does not contain the prism of colors we see, the red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet, but rather this heavenly rainbow is emerald green. It recalls another rainbow. It recalls the rainbow Ezekiel used to describe the splendor that surrounded the heavenly vision of the glory of the Lord. It also reminds us of the eternal covenant of peace God made with Noah. If the color of this unique emerald green rainbow has significance, it may point to God's mercy, or it may symbolize hope, the kind of hope that the greener of spring offers, or perhaps the refreshing calm that green brings to the eye. But then around the Lord's throne are 24 more thrones of the 24 crowned elders wearing white robes. Again, there is much debate about who these elders are. Some think they're angelic beings who represent the whole body of the faithful. Others suggest they represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Others think they recall the 24 orders of priests in 1 Chronicles 24. And yet others draw on numerology, astrology, and astronomy to help identify the 24 elders. But more important, I think, than the identity of the elders is their function, which, as Mounts describes, is both royal and priestly, their white garments speaking of holiness and their golden crowns of royalty. This heavenly scene is a feast not only for the eyes, but also for the ears, as we see flashes of lightning coming from the throne and we hear rumblings and peals of thunder. The noise and the sight reminds us of the terrifying manifestations of God's power and glory at Sinai that left God's people trembling in fear. And then, in front of the throne are seven flaming torches that represent the person of God the Holy Spirit. As we move further away from the throne, John shows us something that is not a sea, but something like a sea of glass that is likened to crystal. And like many other things in this chapter, the full significance of this reflective sea in front of the throne is not really clear. The tour of God's throne room continues as we're shown four winged living creatures whose all-seeing eyes are described as both being in front and behind, all around and inside. These creatures are very much the, like the cherubims shown to Ezekiel, but they have six wings like the seraphs in Isaiah's vision. And unlike each of Ezekiel's four-faced creatures, these creatures, John describes, have unique faces. One, a man's face. One, a lion's face. One, an ox's face. And one, the face of a flying eagle. Commenting on the significance of the four faces of Ezekiel's creature and their place in the divine vision, one early rabbi explains that man is exalted among creatures, the eagle among the birds, the ox among domestic animals, and the lion among wild beasts. And all of them have received dominion, and yet they are stationed below the chariot of the Holy One. 
So too, Sweet probes the significance of the faces of the creature John sees. And he says, the four forms represent what is noblest, strongest, wisest, and swiftest in animate nature. He also notes that all nature is represented before the throne. The birds, domestic animals, wild animals, and humans. All nature takes part in the fulfillment of the divine will, and all nature is involved in the worship of the divine majesty. The magnificent living creatures before God's throne sing a variation of the song the seraphim sang in Isaiah 6, where they said, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. But here in heaven, the living creatures sing a different song. The second line they sing focuses not on God's glorifying presence on earth alone, but rather the Lord Almighty is described in terms of time and eternity. The Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The worship of these living creatures that the living creatures offer continues day and night. They sing while we are awake. They sing while we sleep. Their endless worship is an endless contentment. Their labor is a labor of love. Their worship is the exercise of their gifts and the exercise of their gifts is worship. The 24 elders respond to the worship of the living creatures by falling adoringly before the eternal one seated on the throne. As an act of their selfish devotion and love, they give back the crowns they have received from their giver. And they proclaim, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The elders' declaration not only proclaims the holiness of God, it also proclaims that God is worthy of glory, honor, and power. In their worship, these living creatures and elders have much to teach us. Their only object of contemplation is the God Almighty. Christina Rossetti was very conscious of her place in the world that privileged men and discouraged women from doing theology and biblical interpretation. And she writes in her commentary at this point, the same school of cherubim and elders is open to men. And then she adds confidently claiming her equality with men in Christ. She says, this same school is open to me. True knowledge adores, give thanks, loves, and ever follows on to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. This focus on God alone reminds us that there is no room for worship of other. You shall have no other gods before me. And yet we fall so easily into sin. Citing as evidence a long list of stories in scripture, Calvin called the human mind a perpetual forge or a factory of idols. 
And it is at this point we are taken back to the invitation to witness with John what was on the other side of the open door of heaven. And we are reminded again of our privilege as unworthy creatures prone to idolatry to join in the heavenly chorus to proclaim the holiness of the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And before this same almighty God today, we proclaim God's worthiness to receive glory and honor and power. Amen. <laughs>